All right, well, we have been in a series called High Ground, uh, which we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And so I invite you to right now uh, open up uh, lhcag.org, uh, click that latest message tab, and you will find notes there, and you can add your own notes and then email them to yourself. I think that you're going to want to do that today because today is uh, one of those days where you're really going to be uh, confronted with the call of Jesus in maybe a way that you've never been before. Uh, but when I was looking at this, and you're just talking about the Sermon on the Mount, it is high ground, but also Jesus is setting a very high bar. And that's the title of the message today. He's setting an incredibly high moral bar. And we are about to engage with some of the most or more difficult portions of the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, when we think about people, we admire people who uh, tackle big adventures or great goals, right? When we think of those who uh, have conquered climbing Mount Everest or, you know, have done some, uh, some kind of great physical feat like a, a triathlon or a, uh, one of those mutters, you know, and all, all those things, we, we go, man, that's great. And we admire that they were able to do that. We admire the, the, the ninja. I have a, a pastor friend who is an American ninja who's been on many seasons of that. And, uh, and I admire his tenacity. He's always working out and in the gym and, and all that. And I admire those who have attained great levels of academia. You know, they, they've, they've gotten their, their doctorate or multiple degrees. And we, we admire that, right? The, the amount of work, the, the amount of dedication to achieve those things. Or maybe they've tackled a, a, big, um, a, a big goal like a, a business enterprise or uh, inventing something and bringing something new to the market. We, we admire all that. While we admire it, very few achieve those things. And that's why we look to those, right? Well, unfortunately, that's the same in the church. When we come face to face with the Sermon on the Mount, we look at this very high bar and we say, how could I ever reach it? How could I ever do that? I mean, it just, it seems um, unreachable. It seems unrealistic. How could I actually do what Jesus is calling me to do. And so I, I really want you to press in today because today the way that we're going to look at the scripture is I believe the way that it was intended very clearly and you're going to see the Sermon on the Mount and these high moral standards that Jesus is commanding and demanding in a whole new light that hopefully is going to be some of the best news that you've ever uh, heard even while it challenges you. So uh, open up to Matthew chapter 5, either turn on your Bible or open it up, whichever is appropriate for you, and we're going to begin reading in verses 17 through 20. Now, just to set the stage, remember where we've been. Jesus started out the Sermon on the Mount by calling his disciples to himself, going up on the mountain, showing himself that he's like the new Moses who's bringing the law and bringing the covenant to the people. And he begins to teach them. And he started out with the Beatitudes. And he started telling people about how blessed they are and that they are the salt and the salt of the earth and the lie of the world. And we looked at that last week. Now we're going to pick up in verse 17. It says, Jesus speaking, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law 
or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say, now you see him taking authority. This is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, uh, God in the flesh. He is declaring his truth and his standards. He's saying, but I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. These are the little marks in Hebrew that differentiate between uh, verbs and, and tenses and, and, and really help you to understand what the Hebrew scripture is, is bringing about. He's saying, not a dot, not an iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of the heaven. Now listen to verse 20 because this is where it really gets hard. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're like me, this is the way you feel. You read the words that we're about to get into, and you go, there's something about this that is compelling. And I can't deny that the beauty and the, and the great ideal of human morality that's here, but at the same time, this is terrifying. Because this is saying that unless I'm more righteous than the Pharisees that spent all day, their, their, their whole job was to all day fulfill the law. They were so legalistic. They were just constantly trying to fulfill all the law. And they were looking down on everybody else that wasn't as holy and righteous as they are. And now, here's a, a people that are weary. And you remember, they're poor in spirit. They're, they're like, hey, I... I don't have what it takes to be that kind of righteous. I'm not religious like that. And then Jesus is saying, unless you're going to be more righteous than those guys, than those religious professionals, you don't even get to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how are you feeling right now? You feeling pretty comfortable? I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? Like, what, what do you do with that? Um, so here's what happens. When people come to the Sermon on the Mount, they look at it and it's so terrifying to them that it comes to the place where they either uh, misapply it, they uh, inappropriately teach it, they teach it wrongly, so they misappropriate it, or they deny it altogether as if it doesn't have any bearing on faith today. And all of those things are wrong. So what are we supposed to do with this Sermon on the Mount that is so demanding and sets a high moral standard that we feel like we could never reach. There's three common interpretations to this, uh, to this message. And I felt like I needed to share these with you, but I wasn't sure. So I asked my wife while I was studying. I came out and I said, Marcy, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to read... Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. And then after you're done reading it, I'm going to come back and I just want to ask you, what is your honest opinion and how do you honestly feel about it? So I went away back into my office, back into study, and I came out a little bit later and she had her Bible open. And I asked her, I said, okay, you've read that. 
what your, your honest opinion, your, your just blatant honesty. And I, and I want to read to you what she said. She said, my thought is, this is very strict, extremely hard stuff that I could never do, and I'm going straight to hell. And honestly, if we're honest, when we come against the words of Jesus and how he calls people to such a high level of holiness, many of us would say that we feel the same way or we have felt the same way. And so out of that, because it's so difficult to deal with, we, we, there's three common views. The first is what we're going to call a liberal view. Now, I'm not talking about American politics when I say liberal view. What I'm talking about is that there is a, uh, a kind of theology that approaches the Bible and God in such a way, it's called liberal theology. And so the liberal view looks at it and says, there is nothing miraculous, there's nothing supernatural. It denies miracles and anything supernatural. It even denies the deity of Jesus Christ and the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. And it says that your human reason is all that's needed in order for you to decide what's good and what's bad. And so this whole liberal theology ends up looking at the Sermon on the Mount than nothing more than words from a human teacher that are presenting a, uh, an ideal just for you to ponder and think about as you're considering what's good and what's bad for yourself. So that's the liberal view. And with that view, we get to take the words of Jesus and say, well, he was making commands, but it's just an ideal. There's nothing inspirational about it. There's nothing prescriptive. It doesn't have anything for me other than just to make me think. And I get to set it aside and keep living life my own way. That sounds like the garden, right? Making up, defining good and evil for myself, reaching for the fruit and saying, I want to be like God. Well, then there's a, another very common view, and it's Luther's view. You know, Marty was a great guy who God uh, used in great part to start the uh, reformation of the church. And he was a man who was so convicted of his sin and he was taught a works righteousness that you had to work for your salvation. And so he, he put himself under tremendous strain, starving himself by fasting, uh, he, you know, hurting himself, climbing up the steps of the cathedral on his knees and uh, over broken glass and, and rocks and pebbles and doing all of, this, all of these things to try to earn his way to salvation. And the more he tried to do that, the worse and worse he felt and the more and more depressed he became. So you can imagine that Luther, anything that he read in the scriptures that looked like works righteousness of Catholicism, he reacted strongly against and he fought against. And so Luther's view is that the Sermon on the Mount is, is just impossibly high demands that are intended to make people aware of their sinfulness so that they'll run to Jesus and ask for mercy and grace. And so they're not meant to be things that we try to follow at all. They're meant to show us how lost we are and how much we need the forgiveness of the Savior. Now, he's not all wrong. 
Marty was not all wrong. But unfortunately, because Marty was only looking at it through the lens of, I don't want works righteousness, he missed the biggest and the most important and the best point of all. He missed it. And so he ends up uh, becoming somebody saying, these things are too high. I can't reach him. I can't reach this. And this moral teaching is just to drive us to mercy. But what ends up happening with that is that we end up with, when you chase that all the way to its end, we end up with cheap grace. We end up with cheap, cheap grace. Because the fullest extent of those who follow that end up in, in a mess where they just say, I don't need to follow Jesus' commands. I just need to say that I believe in them and I'm good. And so then the, here's the last view, a legal view. A legal view. Some of you, unfortunately, are still bearing the scars and the pain of growing up in a legalistic uh, framework, a legalistic household or a legalistic church where it was, you know, all these rules and all these requirements. You know, you, you hear stories about them breaking out the rulers and measuring how, how low the skirt was, you know, how far away it was from the knee. And, you know, you can only show your ankles and, and you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that. And all, it's all this legalism. And so the legal view is that the demands of Jesus in this sermon are universal regulations that everyone is demanded to do. And if you don't do these you are not going to spend eternity with God. You have to do this. So, you, so it's, it's salvation by works. So here's what we have. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we have two extremes. On one extreme, it's legalism, and that, that's called nomism. And that, that's this idea that you put the law above the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus went and paid the price for you, Amen. Doesn't that feel good just to know, just to remember that as we get into this? Like, hey, Jesus knew that we were sinners, that we were imperfect, so he died on the cross for our sins, and all of the handwriting of ordinances, in other words, all the charges of sin against us were written against him. He nailed them to the cross, and he paid for them all, and you are free in Jesus, amen? So, so that, you know, legalism, it puts law above the gospel. And it presents salvation by works. On the other end of the spectrum is cheap grace, and that's antinomianism. And that's where instead of being legalistic, you just say, hey, under the dispensation of the gospel, that means that the moral law is of no use to me. Jesus paid it all, and I can do whatever I want, and I'm good with God. And, and what, what ends up with that is that you have a salvation that, well, they'll say is salvation by faith alone, but that is not a faith that works. James tells us that, right? And so is Jesus going to tell us throughout the gospel, right? And so we have these two extremes, and they both lead to total spiritual disaster. Because one of the, one of the most terrible things that happens in the church today is the people who believe um, a cheap grace and they believe that they can live like the devil and still be under the blessings of God. And Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He didn't say, 
uh, believe and keep on doing whatever you're doing and it's okay. He said, no, turn away from your sin, right? So what does this Sermon on the Mount mean for us? We got to have greater righteousness than the Pharisees. You know, this is an extremely high moral bar. But these words of Jesus are the words of God in the flesh. And since they're the words of Jesus preaching, we had better get a handle on what they really mean, right? We had better know what they mean because we can err in one direction or the other. We can be like many who just say, no, that they don't have anything for us. Jesus is just proving that you can't do it and you don't need to, you don't need to pay attention to any of that. Or you could be so legalistic that all you do is walk around feeling guilty and, and bad about yourself all the time. So where do we land? Thankfully, God has already given us the handle that we need so that we can understand what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to take you back to it. You remember when we started going through the book of Matthew? We found out that in the genealogy of Jesus, his birth line, that Jesus is, it, he says it right in the opening lines, Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's both the one who's coming to give you all the promises of God and he's the one who is the righteous, eternal, promised king who is going to come and lead you into the kingdom. And he's going to come and, and peace and, uh, and victory are going to reign in your life, spiritually speaking. And so He's the, he's the king of kings. He is Jesus who's wearing number 14 on his jersey. Remember that from those first messages? That his number is 14. David adds up to, to 14 in Hebrew language, and there's these 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, all pointing that Jesus is number 14, which in the Hebrew mindset means that he is the one who brings the perfect covenant, and he's fulfilling it for you. So then... In Matthew 4, 23, we just read this last week, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus comes preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near, and he's preaching a kingdom gospel. Then he takes us to the Beatitudes, right? He goes up on the mountain, he's bringing the law, but he says, blessed are you, and what are they? They're blessings of the kingdom. They're saying, if you live in the kingdom way, here's all the blessings that you're going to have. So why does this matter? We, we have to see the Sermon on the Mount through a kingdom lens. And the reason why it matters is because in both the eastern mindset of this region, where, where, the, where Jesus was teaching, where people lived, and the Bible, they both see kings as those who are supposed to not only proclaim the law, but they're supposed to embody it. They're supposed to model it for you. They're supposed to fulfill the law that they're bringing to you so that you can see what it is to live right in the kingdom. They're supposed to be the ones that embody everything about what is right and good. And so I'm going to read a quote to you from uh, uh, a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School prof. He says this, Kings were to embody the law internally and produce good legislation that transforms people and leads them into obedience of the law. So here's what 
what we're trying to, to understand here. Jesus is not the kind of king who will make a mandate and then right after that break it in front of everybody. Okay? If he says live righteously, he's going to model it for you. He's going to show you how. He's going to fulfill it for you because he's the righteous king. And so Jesus is coming on the scene as the righteous holy king who fulfills all the law and the prophets. He even takes it to a whole other level, making it a matter of the heart, internalizing it. And he says, this is how we live in the kingdom. And, and, and don't you ever think for one minute that we're going to lower the standard. No, we're going to fulfill it. We're going to live it out. And so he, he, he does that. Now, uh, Plutarch is a Greek philosopher. And listen to what he says. The king shapes his character by the laws so that his subjects fit his pattern. This was the mindset. So as Jesus was preaching to the crowd, they would understand what he meant. If you're still not convinced, let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. This is the commands that God gave to Moses to bring to the people about when they have kings. He says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words. How many words? All the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You know what happened in Israel? The kings failed miserably. They, they failed miserably. By the time King Josiah comes on the throne, he's a teenager when he takes the throne, and he, ha he has a passion for God. And he says, clean out the temple. You know what was in the temple? Idols. And and all of this witchcraft and idolatry and all of the, it was so packed with all of this um, paganism and all of the religions from all around that they had mixed into their worship. It, was, it took them weeks to clean it out. It took them days to clean that all out. And then when they cleaned it out, they found something. And so they're like, what'd you find? I found this book. Oh, go bring it to the king. See what he says. They bring the copy of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, they bring it to Josiah and they go, hey, um, here's our report. We cleaned everything out and work's going good and we're, we're starting to repair things. And oh, by the way, we found a book. They didn't even know what kind of book it was. You imagine that? Can you imagine a church that is so busy being a church and doing the things that they do that they forget that there's a book that they're supposed to be following? That would never happen in modern days, would it? Oh, no, that would never happen. So they failed miserably. Now Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you know what? I'm going to fulfill all this. And I'm going to teach people to fulfill all this. 
And we're not going to relax not one thing because this is holiness in the kingdom of God. And I'm here to make good on all the promises of God. And I'm here to fulfill all the holiness of God. And I'm inviting you with me to come into the kingdom and learn to live this way. That's what he's doing. Hallelujah. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount through this kingdom lens, we see that Jesus neither set it aside nor abolished it. Instead, he fulfilled it by, by internalizing it, embodying it, modeling it. In fact, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew after chapter 7, which is the end of the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to see how Jesus fulfills everything that he teaches. Isn't it good to know that Jesus never commands us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself? Amen? Don't you want leaders like that? Come on, somebody. That's the kind of leadership that we want, and that's the kind of leadership that we have in the church and that we're also called to be like and learn to grow in. And so he calls us to join him in kingdom life, walking in righteousness, allowing the word to be written on our hearts. And when the Holy Spirit writes it on our hearts, you don't have to work to fulfill it. It's not like, nah, I have to be faithful. It's like, I have to be faithful. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be faithful. Amen? Like, I'm, I'm not, it's not, I'm, no, I have to obey the word of God. It's like, I get to obey the word of God. I couldn't do anything but obey the word of God. Why? Because the Spirit's writing it on my heart. And I'm, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. So the gospel miracles prove that Jesus isn't just a human teacher. He's the son of the living God. And he reigns forevermore. And he's righteous and true. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So he came to fulfill it all for us and invite us into a life of uh, the kingdom of heaven. So the, so the gospels are filled with these miracles and these supernatural things and the, the teaching of Jesus, which all proves that he is the one true king that we are looking for. Now, I want to just be upfront and honest with, let's be honest, okay? Because a lot of times you don't get honesty in church, which is a shame. What we're about to get into in the Sermon on the Mount is hard stuff. Hard stuff. This is not candy-coated. This, this is not TV Christianity where everything is supposed to be roses and you're supposed to be uh, healthy, wealthy, and prosperous all the time. That's not what Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he is calling people to follow him in righteousness. And it's hard. It is difficult. And here's the reason why it's hard. Because it goes against every selfish, arrogant, wicked, prideful, lustful, um, broken, indifferent inclination of our fallen hearts. It goes against all that. And, and we are now invited to come into the kingdom and start living the way of the king. Start living like Jesus. Living the way that God had created Adam and Eve to live in the first place. Jesus is going to show us how. And he's our model. He's our guide. He's our shepherd. He's our best friend. He's our victorious Lord. And so we follow. Now, here's the thing. This is really hard, but we follow a righteous, victorious king who fulfilled 
all of the law perfectly, completely, and he is ever interceding on our behalf. So take courage, because even when you fall, even when you're unfaithful, he is not able to be unfaithful to you. He is faithful to the core. And nothing, like I just read at the end of worship, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, listen, you can't lose your salvation like you lose your keys, but you could walk to the lake and throw your keys in the lake, right? And so if you, in order to be separated from Jesus, you have to stop believing in him. You You have to turn away from his ways. You have to give up on him because he's never given up on you. Amen? Amen. So, all right. Now, with that established, I got enough amens. I feel like uh, it's good enough to go on. So let's go forward with courage because we're going to go into some really difficult stuff. The rabbi's not pulling any punches here because he's also the son of God who is the promised Messiah in the line of King David. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Are you ready? Okay, everybody take a deep breath. Here we go. You have heard it said... To those of old, you shall not murder. That's commandment number six. You shall not murder. Commandment number six of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, Jesus taking authority, I say, I'm the king. I am the righteous king. He says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, or in in, uh, Aramaic, raka, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He's not playing, is he? Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Do you see that Jesus is actually saying that he would rather have you go do the act of reconciliation than do the act of sacrifice? Because if your heart is not right, then your sacrifice is broken. He says, go and find your brother and and, um, if anyone's, you're going to be liable to drive, he says, you fool. So leave your sacrifice Leave your offering there at the altar. Go to your brother and be reconciled to him. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus takes the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, and he's changing them from an external um, commands, list of rules, and he's internalizing them, and he's making them a matter of the heart. So we don't get to just say, well, I never murdered anybody, but in my heart, I'm bitter, I'm unforgiving, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm hateful, I'm vengeful, I'm all these things. This is separating you. This is hurting you even more than it's hurting your enemy. Amen? I, I told you it was going to be hard. So he makes it a matter of the heart, and he says, he says these things, and so here, here's what I, because he says these things, and because you said amen, you were ready to go. 
then I dare say to you that many people every Sunday are worshiping under libel. Because we think that we get to be excused from the ministry that we were given, which is the ministry of reconciliation. And we think that we have a right to hold on to hate, to hold on to unforgiveness, and to walk in bitterness. And I'm not saying that it's easy to forgive. I'm not saying that it's not, that it's not a painful, but I am saying that Jesus has called us to a better way. Jesus has called us to a loving way. And Jesus has called us to lay ourselves down, to surrender our pride. So here's what, what I say to you. You might right now need to stand up, walk out, and call somebody. You might right now need to take out your phone and text somebody and say, I need to meet with you. You might right now need to open up your calendar and put a reminder on, I need to go and talk to so-and-so. You know, some of, our, some of our, our friends who are walking through addiction, they know the power of making amends because it's all based on the words of Jesus Christ. Amen? Picking back up. Now, I want you to, say, I want you to notice before we even pick back up, first of all, you might say, that's too hard. You don't know, how, you don't know what they did. I don't, but God does. But I want you to remember this. The king that we're following has modeled this for us. And he who was holy and righteous, never sinned, he was willing to subject himself to be lied about, to be shamed, to be, to be uh, beaten, to be whipped, to be nailed to a cross. And he went all the way to the cross and was willing to die on that cross for our sins to set us free so that we could be reconciled. So if Jesus was willing to do that, then we can't say, you don't know. How, you don't know, God. It's too much for me. Or you don't know what they did. God. No, Jesus does know. Jesus does know. And he's led us. And if he can do it, then he can empower us to do it because now his spirit dwells within us. Yes? Amen. Yes. So picking back up, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's commandment number seven. Number seven, do not commit adultery, right? So um, we're still in the Ten Commandments. He says, but I say to you, do you realize that he's proving himself to be God because he is clarifying how to understand the Ten Commandments? And he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For they took my legs and they threw them over there. They took my it just falls out of my head. I, I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, this is hyperbole. Okay, so right about now, people are kind of snickering when he's teaching because rabbis have a great sense of humor. And he's exaggerating, the, uh, 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 he's speaking with exaggerated terms in order to make the point, to bring the seriousness of the point. He's saying, do whatever you need to do to get rid of the sin in your life. Now, here's the thing. We must master our lust. 
or it will master us. It, it, it just will. And evil desire leads to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. And here's what we see the enemy doing in our day and age. He is capturing our culture with lusts, primarily sexual, but of all kinds. And not only is he capturing people with ungodly lusts and behavior, but he's convincing them that it's right and good to walk in those ways. And Jesus is saying, no. That is, you are on a path to destruction and you better do whatever you need to do to get rid of that. Whatever you need to do, get accountable. Put, put um, covenant eyes on all of your devices. Um, you know, get, in, get in a group. Uh, see, see a counselor. Uh, talk with somebody. Ask for God to heal you. Repent of that. Do whatever you need to do. But it is not worth missing heaven because you can't uh, stop living a life of sin. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Amen? I, I told you this was going to be hard. I told you. Matthew chapter 5, now beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, ah, let her give her a certificate of divorce. Yes, write her off. Write her off. Write her out. Send her packing. But I say, aren't you glad for Jesus? But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, here's what's going on. Now, Jesus is not even quoting, really, from the Old Testament. Because you can't find that in there. Ah, if you've done with her, just write her off. No, you can't find it. What is it? It's now he's speaking to the common teaching of the day. There were whole schools of um, people who said that they loved the Torah, the Word of God, who were teaching people that if your wife is a bad cook, she burns the toast and it just you can't take it anymore, you deserve a better cook. Just write her a, a divorce certificate and move on to the next one. I mean, can you imagine that? And so Jesus comes as the righteous king. Jesus comes as the one who's the faithful groom of the bride. And he will never break his covenant with the bride. Never, never, never. That's why uh, all of this stuff that's happening in the world and all this attacks against the church, no weapon formed against me will prosper, right? It ain't going to happen because Jesus is still on the throne and he's still the head of the church. And so he, he, you know, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says that God hates divorce. But you know what we do? We just, oh, that's okay. Oh, God, God understands. No, this is serious business. So we need, to, we need to receive the grace of God when we mess up. We need to value our marriages. We need to talk highly of them. Hey, men, Quit talking about your wife like she's the war department or the ball and chain. You might, it, might sound, it might sound funny to you. You might get a chuckle, but you are mocking your wife and you are mocking marriage. Lift her up. Come on. Lift up your bride. Honor her. Bless her. Lift her high. Hey, wives, same thing. 
It's fun. Hey, it's fun to tear apart your guy. He never can find nothing new. Just you know, complaining about him. He's an honorary guy, whatever. But hey, you start honoring. You start pouring into. You start. You start lifting them up, and you watch what God does. Amen. So this is what God has called us to. So let's agree with it. Um, now, for those of you who have walked through the very painful, hard, horrible situation called divorce. I want you to know that God loves you. He'll never leave you. He'll walk with you through it. You can be forgiven. He can restore you. But, but let's agree with what the Word of God says, yeah? Let's not write it off. Okay, so now, uh, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't even take an oath at all. Don't do it. Why are you doing that stuff? Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, and no matter how hard I try, I can't make my hair grow anymore. It's just, I can't grow, grow, grow. Hair's overrated. I just shave it. it <laughs> Verse 37, what can you say? Or rather, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You know, here's, here's, the, here's the issue people are going on. They make big shows. I make an oath to you by the throne in heaven. Like, you know, and look at how great I am. Or I make an oath to you uh, on Jerusalem. You know, I swear on my mother's grave and, you know, all this stuff. And then, and then they're just doing that to manipulate you, to trust them, to get you to do whatever they do or believe you or whatever. And they oftentimes don't even mean it. It's just a show or it's just a manipulation. And Jesus is saying, just don't even do that. Just be a person of integrity. If you say yes, let it be yes. If you say no, let it be no. Just, just be truthful. Well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. No, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Amen? Hey, I'm just... I don't write it, I just... Verse 38. Here, wait, before we get to that. Do you realize that some people in the church, still to this day, they're using oaths like witchcraft. And it's being sold to you. You are being sold witchcraft. You watch Christian TV. Oh, if you uh, sow this seed, then God's got to bless you this many times. Really? I thought he was sovereign. Really? Right? And, and, you, and, and, and it's, that's witchcraft. That's now, it, I, I feel like that commercial. That's not how any of this works. It's just not how any of this works. He's the Lord, and we pray, thy will be done. I don't get to twist his arm into doing what I want him to do. I'm, I'm not a warlock. I am a servant of the king, and I wouldn't want to be anything else. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and make your tunic and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He, Jesus is just asking too much. I mean, this is just too high a bar. I mean, I'm not, I can't, can't do that. Oh, really? Your king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who the scripture tells us, by him all things were created, and for him all things were created. He's the same God who endured betrayal, conspiracy, unlawful treatment, mockery, beating, scourging, spitting on him, disgracing him, ripping his beard out, and death by, by crucifixion. And so when he says to you, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, he fulfills it. He's not going to tell you one thing and then show you another. He doesn't operate like that. Our king is righteous, and he's worthy to be praised. He's, he is asking for a lot, and it's not anything that you can do in your own strength, but as he models it for us, and as we walk with him, and as he gives his spirit to us, and he writes the law in our hearts, we learn to follow him. We learn to live the kingdom way. So Jesus is calling us to live the royal way of God. And he sums it up here in verses 43 through 48. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, again, he's not quoting the Old Testament. Because <laughs> the Old Testament said to love your enemy. It does. It, it says that. But, or, but he, he's saying people are now teaching, well, love your neighbor, but who really is my neighbor, right? Isn't that what they asked Jesus? Who really is my neighbor? And hate your enemy. It's the opposite of what God taught us. Picking up verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore, you therefore, He's talking to his disciples. That means he's talking to us. You, therefore, we, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? Again, with the bar, like, how can I ever be perfect? We, we are not until we receive our glorified heavenly bodies are we going to look at Jesus and we are going to see him and we shall be like him. But until that time, we're still in process. But that doesn't mean that we can just, you know, live like the world. It means that we've been, by the grace of God, invited to follow the king and live the kingdom way. And he's fulfilled it already for us, and we're learning how to follow the king and live for him and live like him. So he's the perfect lawgiver who fulfilled the law completely and perfectly. And he embodies the truth, and he's proclaiming it, and he's inviting us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the only question really is, will you follow him? That's the question. And so here, here's what I would say to you. Here's the big, the big challenge. Change your address. Change your address. Because here's what we know from our lives, all of us. We tend to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And at the same time, 
we live like we're a part of the world. We live like the world instead of as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So may I say to you, the Bible says that you and I are aliens and strangers in this world. We're just passing through. This is no longer our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. So if you're living like the world and you're adopting the behavior and the principles and the, and, and the mindset of the world, it's time for you and I, we got to change our address, right? We got we to gotta start living like what we say we believe. Because as has been so wonderfully said, too often many people vote for the kingdom but live like the world. You know, I, yeah, I love the way Jesus does things, but I'm going to do it my way, and that's okay. No, Jesus said, you need to come follow me. And so our citizenship is in heaven, and if you're living like the world and you're still running with the devil, then it's time to change your address because the king calls you to follow him as he embodies the truth and models it for you. He's exemplified it, and now he wants you to live like him. And it's the best news ever. It's the best thing ever. Because even though it's hard, the fruit that is born is awesome. And you start seeing blessings happening all around you as your life becomes a blessing to those around you. So what's your best next step? What's your best next step. Because Jesus is calling us, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Come follow me for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, what's your, what's your next best step? It might be repent. And that's not a bad word. Because that word is inviting you to forgiveness. It's inviting you to grace. It's saying you can turn away from that, and he's going to empower you to do it. You don't have to try to do it in your own strength. You couldn't possibly, but he already fulfilled the law. He already paid your debt. You're free, so repent and come follow. But you do have to repent. Yeah? Yeah. So maybe that's the first step. Maybe it's surrender. Maybe it's surrender because... There's things that we have in our lives and we allow in our lives and we even find ways to justify them and, and, and it comes down to pride, yeah? Pride or unbelief and, well, that's not really true or maybe it's, not, it's just not true for me because you just don't know my situation. And, and maybe it's just, okay, I'm going to surrender to the king and let him lead my life. I'm going to let him define what's good and evil and I'm going to follow him in the good. And when I fall, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent, I'm going to surrender, and he's going to pick me up. See, what Jesus is saying here in everything that I just read, he's breaking out what it means to live those beatitudes that we talked about. You start out poor in spirit, and it takes you all the way through to living for Jesus Christ with a pure heart that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you're, and you're making peace everywhere you go by sharing the gospel and living it out. So maybe it's surrender. Maybe it's reconcile. You know, Jesus said, love your enemy. We don't like that. That's hard because people hurt us. And sometimes, sometimes the pain is so deep that you couldn't even in your natural mind ever conceive of a, of a way that you could actually say to somebody, I forgive you. But here's the thing. When you realize that we are not the judge, you can, you can choose 
to release somebody from your wrath. You can choose to give up your right or your desire to hurt somebody back or to hold something against somebody for what they did for you. And you can turn them over to God and say, okay, God, you take care of them. Okay, God, I'm just going to forgive them. doesn't mean, hey, it doesn't mean that sometimes you don't have to have healthy boundaries. But do not walk in unforgiveness because that's exactly where the enemy wants you. He wants you trapped in unforgiveness. He, he wants you bound in your bitterness. He wants you, he, you know what it does to people? It crushes them both spiritually, mentally, and physically. It's killing people, this unforgiveness and this bitterness. And, and he wants you free from that. So maybe it's time to reconcile. Maybe you really do need to call somebody. Maybe you really do need to set up a, a meeting with somebody. Maybe you really do need to write somebody a letter and say, I just want you to know that uh, I, I forgive you. And that for whatever hurt I've caused you, I ask you to forgive me. Maybe that's what you need to do. And then lastly, it's love, because Jesus said, man, you, you, you've got to love one another. You've got to love not just your neighbor, but you're, you have to be willing to love other people. Now, here's what happened. After Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to the Father, the Christian community started gathering together. And the people of the day, they were burnt out on all of this false worship of these false gods that that just produced nothing. It just, it, it was empty. It was void. And they started looking at this group of people that they were kicked out of the temple eventually. They, they had no temple. They, they, they were oftentimes not even allowed to participate in economics because they refused to worship the emperor or the deity of the city. But they cared for one another. They loved one another. And even when they were being persecuted and martyred, they were praying for their enemies and showing them love and serving them, just like Jesus modeled for them. And it turned the world upside down. It was so compelling. It was, and this is why the Sermon on the Mount compels you. You're like, oh, but I don't know if I can do that. You can't in your own strength. But Jesus is inviting you to follow him as king, to learn to live the kingdom way. Are you willing to change your address? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Hallelujah, Jesus. Father, right now, um, we come to the end of a very difficult portion of Scripture. It's fun to hear how blessed we are. It's, it's exciting to hear the Son of God say that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. When we start reading this, though, God, it, it starts, it's hard. It's hard, God. But, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be willing to change our address and to, and to finally take up residence that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven and we are living out the king's ways and the king's love and the king's truth, and the king's righteousness on this earth. No, we're not perfect, but we're following him, and he's helping us along the way. So God, I pray that you administer to people and help them to prayerfully decide what their best next step is. Minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. So whether in person or distance, I am asking you right now, to, as the worship team leads you,
prayerfully ask, what's my best next step? Because here I'm here to say, nobody is perfect yet, so there's probably a step that you need to take or that you can take, right? So let's pray and respond to the Lord.